The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study this morning in 1 Thessalonians. We've been looking at a section that begins in 5.12 and runs all the way down to verse 22. And it's really a long series of commands that has to do with practical life in the local church. So it's a very practical section. In verses 12 and 13, he starts out by telling them how they are to treat the leaders in the local church. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Those are the local church leaders. And admonish you. He says to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Then he moves from there to talk to them about how they are to treat each other in the assembly. He says, we urge you, brother, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. So we have people that are idle and we need to admonish them. We have people that are faint-hearted. They need encouragement. They don't need admonishment. We have some that are weak and they need help. And we have to be patient with all. So he's telling us one size doesn't fit all. There's different people in the church. We minister them in different ways. And then in verse 15, he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. So he tells us how we're to treat one another. And then he goes, You know, there's going to be people in there that are going to not be treating you right. Okay? Don't repay evil for evil. All right? Don't do that. But he says this, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, the Greek word translated here, seek, is dioko. And dioko means to go after something with strong intent, with strong effort. So what he is saying here is when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us, someone comes against us, rather than seek vengeance, go after the other person's highest good with a vengeance. Now think about that. They do you evil, and your response is to go after their highest good. This is how we're called to live, people. And this is not normal. This is not natural. This is supernatural. Only as we walk in the Spirit, only as we abide in Christ, are we able to live like this. Then in verse 16-18, through 18, he gives them instructions on their relationship with the Lord. So church leaders, one another, and then your relationship with the Lord. Here's how we respond to the Lord. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Yeshua. Now, the this here refers to all of them. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. It's God's will that we do this in every situation. And then for this morning, we come to verses 19-22, which deal with the believer's response to prophecy. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. People, these five imperatives have to go together. The first two negative imperatives of verse 19 and 20 set the boundaries for the last three positive imperatives of verse 21 and 22. These five exhortations concern the use and control of prophecy. I see so many people pulling these verses apart and say, you know, focusing on one of these, these are a unit, okay? This is all about prophecy these verses he says first of all do not quench the spirit now this is a present active imperative 
with a negative participle. Now, you say, what, what's the big deal? Well, the idea there is this setup usually means stop an act that's already in progress. So that gives us the idea that maybe this is happening in Thessalonica. And he says, stop quenching the Spirit. All right? That's what he's saying. Stop quenching the Spirit. The Williams translations, that's what it has. It says, stop stifling the Spirit. Now, the word quench here is from the Greek word spenumi, which applies to putting out a flame of some sort. This, is, this word is used eight times in the New Testament, and this is really the only place where it's used in a metaphorical sense. All its other uses have to do with putting out a fire. So quenching the Spirit is a figurative expression used to illustrate the possibility of hindering or restricting the Spirit's work somehow. We're prohibiting the Spirit from doing what He wants to do. Now, so basically what he's saying here is our actions affect the working of the Spirit. There's a parallel text in Ephesians 4.30. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in the context here of chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul's been showing what it means to live as a Christian in a pagan world. He says believers are not to live like the rest of the world. He says walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. He says then rather as those now created anew in righteousness and holiness, as those who have put off the old man and put on the new man. So he goes through all these exhortations about how we are to live, and then in the middle of it, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because he sees... Our actions are sin as grieving the Holy Spirit. Kittle notes this. He says, The Greek word translated here, grieve, is lupeo, which can mean both physical pain and mental anguish. Lupeo means to make sorrowful, to affect with sadness. So not only does the believers, when they sin, they pain Yahweh, but it hinders the work of the Spirit. Now, Some believers want to take Paul's statement here, do not quench the Spirit, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and they misuse these to justify all kinds of foolish behavior that goes on in the midst of the church. You know, people do something crazy and then you'll say, well, that's not, and you'll say, hey, don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. You ever heard of uh, holy laughter that went on for a while? It was a phenomenon in which the people just begin to laugh uncontrollably, presumably, or at least they would say, because of the Holy Spirit. And it's characterized by uncontrollable laughter, sometimes accompanied by falling on the floor. And this is the Spirit, they say. You're laughing like an idiot, and then you just fall down, and you're rolling around the floor laughing, and you're like, eh, it's all about the Spirit. No. And others would, you know, say if you question their gibberish, their tongues outburst or whatever, that you know you have no right to question that because that's what they'll use this verse. Hey, don't quench the Spirit. All right? So this is not a license for you to do whatever you want to do and blame it on the Holy Spirit, okay? That's not what these passages intend to say. And, and next week we'll look at the fact that he says, test everything. So he tells us, you got to test it. Don't just say, oh, okay, we don't understand that. It must be of the Spirit. No. That's not how it works. We hinder, we grieve the Holy Spirit's working in our lives when we tolerate known sin, whether individually 
or in the church. We hinder, we grieve the Spirit. And instead of doing that, instead of hindering or grieving, the believer is called to be controlled by the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And be led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. Then he says, do not despise prophecies. Now, in the context here, this is the primary way of quenching the Spirit. All right, the people at Thessalonica were questioning things. They were saying, what's going on with this? And again, this is a present active imperative with the negative particle, usually expressing an action that's already going on, telling you to stop it. Stop despising prophecies. Now, scholars acknowledge that we really don't know for certain what the problem is here that Paul's correcting. But apparently some were restricting or prohibiting altogether the exercise of the gift of prophecy in the church in Thessalonica. We don't know why. Maybe it's because some were making false prophecies. Maybe some were pretending to have prophecies. and We don't know what was going on. But I think 2 Thessalonians 2.2, this might be an issue that was going on. He says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seemingly to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there were people in Thessalonica maybe saying, maybe prophesying, maybe claiming to prophesy that the day of the Lord had already come. Now let me remind you what we learned about the day of the Lord back in the early parts of this chapter. When we find references to the day of the Lord in the Tanakh, it refers to God's judgment on a nation. Usually use another nation to punish a nation. But when we find that expression, day of the Lord, in the New Testament, it always refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. God using other nations, the Roman nation, to punish Jerusalem. So this is, the day of the Lord here is God's judgment on the apostate Jewish nation that happened at the end of the age when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. That was the end of the Old Covenant. That was the consummation of the New Covenant. So those in Thessalonica saying this had already happened, they were obviously wrong. Okay, because Jerusalem was still standing. And things like this may have turned the Thessalonians against prophecy. They're like, ah, we don't even want to hear that stuff, all right? We don't know for sure. Well, let's talk about prophecy. The definition of prophecy in the New Testament has been really debated. Okay, it's still debated today. Talk to somebody, find out what, what they think it is. You'll get a lot of different opinions. Most Reformed scholars, along with evangelical seminaries such as Dallas or the Master Seminary, that's MacArthur School, or Westminster, they hold to a view called cessationism, okay? And while they believe that God works miracles today, He's God, He can do whatever He wants, they argue that modern examples of healing and miracles are not the same as the miraculous gifts we find in the New Testament. See, they believe that the miraculous or sign gifts, prophecy, miracles, healing, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, ceased at the end of the apostolic era, that's why they're cessationists. These gifts ceased at the completion of the canon of Scripture. So that's the view that those guys would hold. But there are other Reformed scholars, such as Wayne Grudem, John Piper, D.A. Carson, Sam Storms, who believe that such gifts are still valid for the church today. So we got prophecy. We've got some saying prophecies no more, others saying still today. All right. We know that in the New Testament, prophecy was a spiritual gift. 
And a very important spiritual gift. In fact, in writing to the Corinthians, Paul talked about prophecy and the importance of it. In, in chapter 14, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This was an important gift for the early church. He says in verse 3, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He's comparing prophecy and tongues here. Now, some would say that according to what Paul's saying here, the main purpose of prophecy is not predictive, not something telling about the future, but it's just for strengthening and encouragement and comfort, building up the community. And I would agree that prophecy is not always predictive, but it's always divine. It's not just someone coming along and saying, trying to encourage you with their words. It is a word. Prophecy is a word of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. These believers were being built up. They were being encouraged by the word of Yahweh. G.K. Beale writes this. The word spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 2, 12, 15 and 16 refers especially to divine revelation through tongues and prophecy. So that the close link between spirit and prophecies here points to the same thing. So he's talking about, I agree with Beale here. This is divine revelation. In other words, this is God speaking. That's what prophecy is. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.39. It says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. So prophecy was a very, obviously, an important gift of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles, gifts, healings. So there seems to be an order of importance here. First, we got apostles. Second, we got prophets. And then teachers. Paul also tells us of the importance of prophets in Ephesians 2.20. He says, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So prophets, along with the apostles, are responsible for laying the foundation of the church. Keep that in mind. Once the foundation is laid, you don't lay it again, okay? So let me ask you again, what? exactly is prophecy well john macarthur writes this it simply means to speak before people it's the gift of public speaking and i would say where's that in the bible where there's several lists of gifts in the bible is have you seen public speaking anywhere do you know unbelievers that can speak publicly very well well they must have prophecy they must be prophesying this is the most nebulous, the most mindless thing. I, I mean, really? It's just speaking before people? That's, that's so watered down, it's not even funny. Okay? If, and if this is right, what is, what is teaching? Isn't that speaking before people? Grudem defines prophecy, modern prophecy, is this. He says, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So you just think of something and say, let me tell you this. That, oh, that's prophecy now? Really? Come on, Wayne, you can do better than that. He goes on to say, so prophecies in the church today should be considered merely human words, not God's words, and not equal to God's words in authority. Okay? Now here's the key. I agree with him because the thing he's saying, the key word here is today. Prophecies in the church today. And we'll talk about that. Should be considered merely human words. So when someone says they're prophesying today, I don't think they are. 
Now, G.K. Beale, who rejects the views of both Grudem and MacArthur, writes this. Some define prophecy not as a direct, flawless revelation from the Spirit, but as faithful preaching the Word of God to a church congregation. So anybody who just preaches that, they're prophesying. He said, this appears incorrect, since prophecy elsewhere in the Bible seems always to be connected with a direct revelation by the Spirit. Prophecy in the New Testament is the same as prophecy in the Tanakh. It is a direct, infallible revelation of God. When the prophet speaks, God speaks. Okay? The gift of prophecy was the ability to receive and communicate direct revelation from God before the New Testament was completed. They're getting their hearing from God. Okay, so you can see that there's a great disagreement on what the New Testament prophecy was. You have men like Grudem saying, it's just human words, not God's words, not equal to God's authority. Men like Beale saying prophecy is a direct revelation from God. And where we come down on this issue is really important. Because if you believe that prophets are giving merely human words, you don't have to really worry about what they're saying, right? You're just giving some opinion on something. That's their opinions, mere human words. But... If they're giving direct revelation from Yahweh, then you better pay attention, okay? Because God is speaking. This is important because they're those today who claim to be prophets. So do we need to listen to these people? Do we need to find out what they're saying? Do we need to write down what they're saying? Because what they're saying is equal to Scripture. And your view of prophecy determines how you respond to what these people are saying. Now, we talked last week about truthers. Remember? I said truthers are those people that are out there, they're reporting, they're on YouTube, they're on you know, different sites, Rumble, Telegram, and they're giving you the news, basically, and they're giving their opinion on it. They're trying to explain to you current events and what's going on. And I told you the mainstream media does nothing but lie to you. Don't, please, if they tell you the sun's out, don't believe them. Get a raincoat, okay? Because whatever they tell you, they're lying. They're making stuff up. Elon Musk dropped a bombshell this week on Twitter, okay? He took all the Twitter files, because now he owns the place, and he dumped them showing how Twitter interfered in the election. The presidential election. He showed it, documented. You know what the mainstream media had to say about it? Crickets. Don't even talk about it. Our election was stolen, but that's don't say anything. That's why you got to shut that nonsense off, Okay. But here's another problem, people. Beware of this. Many of those who call themselves truthers, and there's a lot of them out there, a lot of them good people, a lot of them doing their best to report what's actually happening. They're on the ground. They're seeing things. They're reporting what they know. They're doing research. But there's several of them that are promoting a new age philosophy. Okay? Men like SGNon, Simon Parks, Charlie Ward, Scott McKay, Sasha Stone, and others... They talk about the God force within you. They talk about spiritual ascension and reaching ascension. That comes from Darwinism in the 17th century Enlightenment. They talk about 3D consciousness and 5D consciousness. See, you're not, you're not in the fifth dimension with your consciousness. And you need to get out of the 3D consciousness and get into the fifth. New age nonsense. That's all it is. And they're blabbering away about all that. People are like, what are they even saying? Okay? 
So you have to be careful. You have to be a brain in every area of life, like Veronica said earlier. This is not, you don't just be a brain when it comes to the scripture. That's the first and foremost importance, but you should be a brain in every area of life. Check, don't believe what people are telling you, okay? And I mentioned truthers today because some of these people are pushing this woman named Julie Green. Anybody heard of Julie Green? Julie Green is a modern day prophet, okay? Here is a so called prophecy of hers. This is from November 12th. 2022, just a couple weeks ago, okay, Julie said this, For I, the Lord, this day, am asking my children, where is your faith? Okay, let me ask you something. Who's talking here? (laughs) Yes. Okay, Julie is speaking, but Julie is saying, I, the Lord. So Julie's saying, God is speaking through me. This is God. This is Julie's word. Uh, don't, don't take my word for it. Let me show you, okay? Tell them, Julie. For I, the Lord, this day am asking my children, where is your faith? See, I, the Lord, she said. Listen again. For I, the Lord, this day am asking my children, where is your faith? I, the Lord. So that, that kind of makes it, you better listen to Julie because this is God, all right? This is God talking. She says, I the Lord this day. All right? She goes on to say, I like this, same, same prophecy, same day. I have sent my prophets to the lands. I have sent them to speak my words. Who's she talking about? Herself, right? <laughs> okay, God is talking. He said, I sent my prophet. Hey, it's Julie, by the way. To the lands, I have sent them to speak my words. Now, she's got this right, because this is what prophecy is. Prophecy is the Word of God. But she's talking about herself, because she claims to be a prophet of God. <clears throat> and there's so many people saying, oh, you've got to go to listen to Julie and listen to the prophecies. So many of these things are coming true. Yeah, because they're so nebulous, you know, that they're going to come true, all right? Here's another one. She says, <clears throat> but didn't I say that I am your victory? Is that not my name? I am Jehovah. Does that set off any kind of red flags to anybody? If you are knowledgeable (laughs) about Bible and about theology, you know that Jehovah is a made-up word that means nothing. All right? Now listen, this is supposed to be God-talking, So let me say a word about Jehovah. The Hebrew Scriptures, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the personal name for God is written with four Hebrew letters. yod Hey vav Hey. All right, we go from right to left, the yod Hey vav Hey. That's the Tetragrammaton. This name appears 6,829 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. You think God wants us to know this name? 6,829. But your Bible has taken it out and they put capital L-O-R-D. They, because they're following the crazy Jewish idea that you shouldn't say the name. All right? In the first temple period, at least until the Babylonian exile, which happened about 586 B.C., the divine name Yahweh was regularly pronounced in daily life. They used the name. It's God's name. It's so many times He wants us to use it. But by the 3rd century B.C., 
Although the Tetragrammaton, the yod heh was still pronounced by the priests in certain temple liturgies, the Jews had gotten to the point where they avoided using the name. See, the ineffable, ineffable name. You can't say the name of God anymore. How they come up with this, I don't really understand, but it was wrong. All right? So when reading the scriptures, they would substitute Adonai, Lord. All right? Now, until the Middle Ages, Hebrew was written without vowels. By the 6th century A.D., a system of vowel signs was developed by the Masoretes, who were Jewish scholars of the period. And they did this to help you in pronunciation. Because here's the thing, nobody's ever heard the yod heh vav pronounced. And we can argue about pronouncement. I go with Yahweh because it's the most common. It's probably close, okay? So they superimposed, the Masoretes, they superimposed the vowel signs of the word Adonai upon the continents of the yod heh vav And in 1518 A.D., in his monumental work of Christian mysticism, the Italian theologian and Franciscus friar Galatinus, not realizing that the Masoretes had placed the vowel signs of another word with the continents of the yod heh vav they fused the vowels of Adonai and the consonants of the divine name, and they gave the church Jehovah, a word which has absolutely no meaning in Hebrew. All right? The word Yahweh means He is. He exists. He causes to exist. Jehovah means nothing. The Anchor Bible Dictionary states this. The misreading of the text to form the word Jehovah is usually traced to Petrus Galatianus, confessor of Pope Leo X, who in 1518 A.D. translated, literated the four Hebrew letters with the Latin letters J-H-W-H together with the vowels of Adonai producing the artificial form Jehovah. Now, Scholars disagree as to who actually coined the word Jehovah, but the scholars agree that it is a human construct. Okay? It's not an authentic pronunciation of yod heh vav It's not God's name. It is totally made up, so strike Jehovah from your Christian vocabulary. And this is the problem I have with Young's. I don't know why Young's put this in there. But it's just sad that they did, okay? Young's literal translation translates the yod heh as Jehovah. So here's the problem. We have a woman who is claiming to speak for God, direct revelation, and she wants us to believe that Yahweh uses the name Jehovah for himself. Maybe God didn't know they made that name up. Maybe he bought into the lines. I'd like that. Now let's just use that. <clears throat> she is talking for God. This is God talking, and he calls himself Jehovah. That should be a red flag to anybody that understands anything. If she had knew anything that she thinks she knows, she'd realize that's not a name that God's going to call himself. Okay? So it's just absolute nonsense, basically. On November 16th, another prophecy. Julie said, I'm just one, I want to pull a piece out here. Pedophilia. The word will be in the news more and more. Wow, that takes a genius to figure that out. I mean, if you're paying any attention to the climate and what's happening, 
This, the whole, the pedophiles are being drawn out in the open. And they're being exposed. And so that's what she says here. Oh, we're going to hear this word and you're going to, oh, that's great, Julie. Thanks a lot. You've been very helpful. And then she ends this by saying this, Seth, the Lord of hosts. Again, so Julie claims to be speaking divine revelation. She says, for I, the Lord. Then she says, Seth, the Lord of hosts. Her predictions are nebulous. I could come up with most of these predictions just looking at current events, just paying attention to what's going on. She's not a prophet. She's a charlatan. And I want to show you this morning through the scriptures that prophecy has ceased. There are no prophets today. So she is not a prophet. Interestingly, 1 Corinthians 14 that talks about prophecy and the importance of prophecy, right, also says this, the women should keep silent in the churches. wonder why he threw that in there. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Biblical prophets were gifted men who were second only to the apostles in the founding days of the church. A prophet in the New Testament refers to one who has insight into divine things and who speaks them forth. Sometimes prophecy was predictive. We see this in Acts 11, 27, 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, Agabus, stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So Agabus comes down and says, people, get ready, there's going to be a famine. So they did predict the future. But not always. For instance, not everything Isaiah said was predictive. He's a prophet. Not everything Jeremiah said was predictive. But when they spoke of future events, how accurate did they have to be? That doesn't leave room for error, people. How much? 100%. Why Why 100%? Doesn't God make some mistakes sometimes? <laughs> They're speaking for God. Let me show you this. All right, Deuteronomy 18. You've got you to understand this passage in Deuteronomy 18. Someone tells you they're a prophet, take them back to Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. All right, he's talking to Moses. I'm going to raise a prophet like you. The prophet is Yeshua. From among their brethren, I will put my words in his mouth. People, that is the definition of a prophet. They're someone that God has put his words in their mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So a prophet is the mouth of God. He's speaking for Yahweh. A biblical prophet is someone who has met with Yahweh, someone who has stood in the divine council and has been sent forth to speak the words of God. That's what the Bible says. Now, a contemporary writer, Ron McKenzie, who's a Presbyterian minister, says this, The most urgent need of the modern church is the restoration of the prophetic ministry. Well, what about the Bible, Ron? Do we have that? Do we have the Word of God? So why do we need this other stuff? Well, this, is, this gets good. Look what he has to say. There are no perfect prophets. There are very few perfect prophecies. Wait a minute. Let me back up. Didn't I just say God is going to put His words in their mouth? So this is God speaking. That's what a prophet is. So if what he's saying is there's very few of them, then God's making mistakes here. He's, I would expect that even experienced prophets get it wrong sometimes. 
I suspect that most prophets would be very happy if they got it right 90% of the time. An even larger percentage of prophecies from God will still be contaminated by something the prophet has added from his own heart. This is normal, even for experienced prophets, because all prophets are human. Then he goes on to say, we must also learn to reject prophecies without killing the prophet. Uh, No. The church should accept a mistake as a reminder that all prophets are human. The prophets should be glad to hear about their mistakes so they can learn from them. Well, according to Deuteronomy 18, the prophet will not be very glad to hear about his mistakes because he'll be dead. <laughs> Deuteronomy 18, 19-22. Whoso will not listen to my words. Again, prophecy are the words of God. That he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But if the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now listen, he says, if a prophet presumes to speak in my name, and I haven't told him to speak, they're speaking, but I didn't tell them to, they should die. That's a little different than what Ron just said, right? If you say in your heart, how will we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? That when you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's yod heh vav Yahweh. When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, they should fear the prophets because they're speaking for God. If they don't listen, they're going to be in trouble. So a prophet is to speak Yahweh's word and needs to be 100% accurate when predicting the future or there to die. That should cut down on prophecies. You know? It should cut down a whole lot. All right, You should be a little bit afraid to be speaking for God because you're going to die. A prophet is the mouth of God. Look at Exodus 7, 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. So Moses is like God to Pharaoh, and watch, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. See, Aaron's a prophet because he's speaking for Moses. Moses is like God to Pharaoh, like God, not God. The, The word here, God, is Elohim. So people say, see, Moses was an Elohim. He's like one. You know that word like makes a little difference? It doesn't mean you're you like it, okay? That doesn't mean that today. Like means exactly the same, I think, you know, today. But, okay, so Moses is the prophet. No, Moses is God. Aaron's the prophet, all right? The words. He's speaking the words that Moses was supposed to say to him. Now, John Piper writes this. If the spiritual gift of prophecy is different from the but the spiritual gift of prophecy is different from the inspiration of scripture. I don't think so. It, it God is speaking, God is speaking. When God speaks in the Bible, it's inspired. When God speaks anytime, it's inspired. It's God. So I don't really see the different there. Uh, a prophet is the mouth of God. Now Marvin Vincent says this on prophecy. Prophecy is utterance under immediate divine inspiration, delivering inspired Exhortation, instructions, or warnings. The fact of direct inspiration distinguished prophecy from teaching. 
See, the teachers are putting together stuff and trying to give you information. The prophets are saying, this is what God said. And before the completion of the revealed truth in the Scriptures, the prophets, these inspired revealers of God's teaching, were instructing the churches. They told these infant churches what they should do, what they should believe, how they should teach. And the ministry, their ministry, the prophet's ministry, was superseded by the Bible. And that's why if you have prophets today, then it's equal to this. Which means if someone prophesies, you better get over there and find out what they said and add an addendum in here. Okay? Because it's equal to this. And you see the confusion and the frustration there would be to always hearing these new things. Some people say, well, they're prophets today in a secondary sense. And they'll say, aren't those who preach the word with power and authority prophets? No. Okay? Not unless they're speaking under direct revelation from God. Are there prophets today who could write something that would have the authority of Scripture? Scripture is finished, people. John MacArthur says this, There are people who want to eliminate prophecy as still existing today. He's talking about me. They have a problem. I do, but he doesn't know about it. Because if they eliminate prophecy, what do they say the people are doing who proclaim the word? Uh, John, they're proclaiming the word. That's everybody. Isn't everybody called to do that? I mean, this is so. I'm like John. Did you think when you wrote this stuff, or what? You just make stuff up. So proclaiming the word is a prophet. David Goodzik writes this. He says, do not despise prophecies. We recognize that the Lord speaks to and through his people today. And we learn to be open to the voice. Now, he's a modern writer, and he says, prophecy's happening today, people. And we learn to be open. You better be open. It's the word of God. If what the prophet is saying is God's voice, It's got the same authority as Scripture. Now, if you haven't picked up on this yet, it is my position that all prophecy ended in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed as the Lord returned in judgment, ending the old covenant error, fully consummating the new covenant. And I think this is easily provable through the Scriptures, okay? We just need to look at some things in the Tanakh. Let's start with Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 talks about the 70 years for the Babylonian captivity is just about over. Daniel says in Daniel 9, 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So, Daniel had calculated the number of years of the Babylonian captivity based on Jeremiah's prophecy. And this prophecy was the word of Yahweh. That's what it says, the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah. So he knows, okay, this is what God is saying So he goes to Yahweh in prayer, asking him to remember his covenant, to restore Israel. The restoration of Israel is at the heart and core of Daniel's prophecy. The angel was sent to speak unto Daniel, and this is what he said. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city. Who's Daniel's people? The Jews, the holy city, Jerusalem. 
to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring about everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Excuse me. Now, Daniel was told that 70 weeks had been determined on the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, and by the end of this prophetic time period, God had promised that these six things would be accomplished. And one of the things that Daniel was told would happen by the end of the period was that God would seal both vision and profit. Now, if you've done any study using commentaries, one thing you probably already picked up on, scholars don't agree on almost anything, okay? They don't agree. And that gives really strong force to this phrase here because almost all scholars are in agreement on what this means. The Hebrew commentaries are in agreement on the meaning of seal both vision and profit. They say it means to give or reveal. It's the process of inspiration. But not just that, it also means to confirm by fulfilling of a prophecy. So Kyle and Delich, who are highly respected Hebrew authorities, they say this in volume 9. Yeah, volume 9. So there's a few volumes of this. Kyle, I mean, these guys got some serious stuff. All right. On page 344, they say this. Seal up vision and prophecy means prophecies and prophets are sealed when by the full realization of all prophecies, prophecy ceases. No prophets anymore appear. Okay? So this is what this means. The prophecy is done. So Hebrew scholars agree that it means the end of prophecy and the complete fulfillment of all prophecy that was given. Prophecy's end. There are not going to be any more. What has been already put forth is completely fulfilled. Now, here's what's interesting. John Walvoord. Anybody know, you know who John Walvoord is? Mr. Dispensationalist, okay, probably wouldn't agree on much of anything. He says this, probably seal up vision and prophecy is best understood to mean the termination of unusual direct revelation. So he understands what prophecy is. By means of vision and oral prophecy, to seal means that no more is to be added and that what has been predicted will receive divine confirmation in the form of actual fulfillment. So he, even Walvoord agrees. So seal both vision and prophet clearly means to give prophecy and fulfill it. So Daniel's prophecy then tells about a time when all prophecy would cease to be given and what had been given would be fulfilled. When was that to happen? Well, Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. So now we know when prophecy ended, right? Let's compare Daniel 9.25-27 with Matthew 24.15 and following where Yeshua said the abomination of desolation and His coming would occur in His generation, the generation He lived in. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Anointed One, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, an Anointed One shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. You get that's Jerusalem. They're going to destroy it. The city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. 
All right, now it talks about the prince who is to come. Who is this? It's funny, some people say, well, this is the beast. This is the Antichrist. Uh, No, actually the nearest antecedent for the coming prince in verse 26 would carry us back to the anointed one, a prince, an anointed one who shall be cut off. Therefore, Christ becomes the one and only prince in the context. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And then it says the people of the prince, those are the Jewish people. And people, here's what we have to understand. These, the Jewish people were the ones responsible for the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. When you take all the facts of biblical and secular history and consider them all, they caused this, okay? They revolted against Rome and they caused this destruction to come about. Daniel 9, 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here, the abomination of desolate happens in the middle of the 70th week. When this happens, prophecy ceases. Now, we know from the teaching of Yeshua when this happened, because if we go to Matthew 24, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, I wonder if that's the same thing Daniel spoke about. Oh, yeah, spoken by Daniel the prophet. (laughs) Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Hang on to that thought. If you're in Judea, you see this happening, what do you do? Go. Run. Get to the mountains. What mountains is he talking about? Shenandoah? Rockies? I mean, is he talking to us? Oh, maybe it doesn't involve us. Well, it's... The abomination of desolation is referring to the Roman army being in the holy place, the city of Jerusalem. In verse 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor never will be. Now the then is when the Roman army surround Jerusalem and lay siege to it. And that happened in AD 67 through 70. It was a three and a half year siege. And he says there's no tribulation to equal what happened during that period. Not before it, not after it. People, I hate to disappoint you, but the great tribulation is over. I know some people are so looking forward to that. (laughs) They really are, but it's over. All right, it happened in AD 67 through 70. Three and a half years, it was a great tribulation. It was a time of... Jacob's trouble, okay? So Daniel tells us that his vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, which would bring an end to all prophecy, right? So Daniel said that we're going to seal a vision prophecy when the temple's destroyed, so we got all that. Okay, that, now we know when prophecy ends. What's interesting is that is exactly what Luke tells us. So let's go over to Luke 21, 20 through 22. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, there we go again, Okay? Luke says this, then know that its desolation has come near. Yeah, we get that. We, we figure that out, right? Well, armies are surrounded. We're in trouble. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. People, he's telling them this because this does not make sense. Because if, if an army is attacking you, Jerusalem is a fortress. You're not going to leave the fortress if you got an army coming. But God says you better leave the fortress because the fortress is going down. So get out of there, flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let those who are out in the country not let the country enter, for there are, these are the days of vengeance. Don't go back. 
You're out there, you see the Roman army, get out of there, get out of town, run. Here's why. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, back up to when you see. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people in the first century. Okay, people listening to him. People when Jerusalem was there, they could see the temple. When you see it, get out of there. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. He says, this is the days of vengeance. God's vengeance on Jerusalem. To fulfill all that is written. What does he mean? All prophecy would be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened in AD 70. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that prophecy would end when the perfect comes. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, what is the perfect? I've heard all kinds of explanations of this. What is the perfect? The perfect, they, some people say it refers to the maturity of the body. Refers to the resurrection. Refers to Christ's coming. Yes, all the above. <laughs> all the above. Okay? In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by the judgment of God, bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. The canon of Scripture was closed. There was no Scripture written after A.D. 70. I don't care what people say. All right? You dig into it. You get into really some of the people who are involved in this, some deep scholars, and they'll tell you, Scripture wasn't written past 70. All right? It just wasn't. And to think that Scripture was written past 70, and in that Scripture they never mentioned the destruction of the temple, the most monumental thing ever happened to the Jewish people, but they don't talk about that? It's nonsense, okay? All those things were involved at that time, all right? So the word perfect here is the Greek word teleon. And the literature of the New Testament usually equates the Greek word teleon with maturity. In its eight occurrences in Paul's epistle, six are translated mature. The phrase the perfect is often used in the Greek language to speak of purpose or goal. In this context, it's the goal of Yahweh for the church. Well, what is Yahweh's goal for the church? It's that it be conformed to the image of Yeshua. And that took place in AD 70 when the Lord returned, bringing in the new heavens and earth where we see Him face to face. So the coming again of our Lord for His people brought them into full maturity and closed the canon of Scripture. The reason that spiritual gifts were temporary was because once we came into a face-to-face relationship with Christ, we entered full maturity. There's no longer any need for spiritual gifts. The gifts were for the purpose of building up the body until we reach maturity. Look at Ephesians 4, 11, 13. He gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until... We all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the statutes of the fullness of Christ. That happened in AD 70. The church became mature. The church received Christ's righteousness. So Daniel says prophecy is going to cease. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4. Luke says it. If seal both vision and prophet means to give and fill all prophecy, and if all prophecy is not yet fulfilled, 
then all prophecy has not yet been given. That would mean that there's still prophecy to be given, which would mean the Bible is not complete and the charismatics are right. God is still speaking through the gift of prophecy. That makes it difficult for us people, because if you want to be obedient to God, you want to know His Word, you've got to add a lot of things to the Bible. It's not complete. We're adding things, addendums all the time. They're the Word of God. But since prophecy has ended in AD 70, according to the Scriptures, and according to scholars who don't believe the Lord returned in 87, they just believe that's what the Bible says, that's what that idea was when Jerusalem was destroyed, prophecy was fulfilled. If that's true, then there's no prophets today. There's no one speaking for God, okay? Unless they're teaching the Bible, and the Bible is the Word of God, and they're telling you what God said already, and it's written down, and you can study it, and you can examine it, and you can dig into it for yourself. There is no one today speaking under immediate divine inspiration. We have God's Word contained in the Bible, and people, that is all we need. And these people that are running around seeking for another word, some kind of vision, some kind of prophecy, get in the Bible. Read that. It's amazing. You could spend the rest of your life and you'll not figure it all out, okay? But you're looking for something new, something exciting. There's a lot of exciting stuff in here, okay? You got wars, you got love stories, you got all kinds of stuff, all right? It's good, it's exciting, and it is the Word of God. So stick to the Bible and don't worry about all those people, what they're claiming. All right, we're going to come back next week and continue this subject because I didn't want this to go on forever, but uh, there's just a lot to say about prophecy. So, all right. Stop worrying about what Julie's saying. You don't need to be afraid, okay? She's not. Even though she says she's the Lord, she's not. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just thank you that it's so clear. You you have just laid it out for us, Lord, if we just would spend the time looking at it. Thank you, Father. I thank you that we don't have to be subject to these people who are claiming they speak for you, Lord. Lord. We have a Bible. Every one of us can know what you have said if we just take the time to read it. Father, help us understand that the Scripture is the living Word of God. And may we commit time to it, Lord, to learn what it has to say. And then we'll be equipped and won't have to worry about these other people and what they're saying because we'll know what you say. Thank you, Lord, for the many opportunities we have today to understand, to study, to dig in your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, questions, comments. Ren? Can you help me understand a little bit more this belief of cessation? Because I've heard of people who do believe that but aren't preterists. So how are they able to believe that there's no more prophecy, there's no more spiritual gifts without believing that all the prophecies have already So you're saying that's a contradiction? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about that next week. Yes, it is a contradiction. If you say prophecy ceased, and many of them do, but the Lord hadn't come back yet, wait a second, that prophecy ceasing is connected with the destruction of the temple, which is the coming of the Lord. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about that next week, but it is a contradiction. You can't say some of it ceased, some of it's still there, and that's, I say, some of it's still out there, some of the gifts are still active. The gift of helps people is still there, so don't worry, okay? Whenever you need help. Just call someone with that gift, and they will help you out.
ceased, it ceased. Right. And because when the perfect came, which to them would be the canonization of the scripture, there's no more need for prophecy. So that's that's how they get around that. Oh, okay. That's but it is, but it is hip, hypocritical. Okay, it's a, it is a contradiction what they do because they want to. Yeah, some of it, and again, they divide the gifts. The sign gifts end. Yeah, they call the other ministry gifts. They're still available. Are you going to talk about that next week? I am going to talk about okay. that next week. But only if you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Gary. Well, I mean, you said Marvin Vincent, you had quoted there. It says, the fact of direct inspiration distinguishes prophecy from teaching isn't, well. He's talking about the gifts, the New Testament gifts, prophecy, and yeah, teaching. But isn't scripture written under the inspiration of God? Yes. Okay, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about teaching, like what you do. People, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes. I know. I did. I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't speak under inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> John. Just a quick comment on the question. Verse fourteen of that Ephesians four passage says, "As a result of um, of like reaching maturity." We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And the gravity of that rests on the completed canon of Scripture. That's right. We don't have to be deceived because the truth is in the book. That's right. We don't have to run around and listen to what everybody says and try to put it all together. We have the Word. We have it. Right? So is there a way to reach an easier common ground with our brothers and sisters who believe that prophecy is still happening without trying to convince them that all prophecies have been fulfilled because obviously we know that's difficult to explain and less I use the word convince our friends of preterism is there an easier way I wish I knew one <laughs> is there, there's not like a, a closer common ground to say hey don't be led astray by these prophets without saying because Jesus has already come back. I think today most of the people, most evangelicals think prophecy has, I think, passed. I mean, I think for most part, because they're not seeing it. The prophets are more in the charismatic movement, the people who are claiming to be prophets. And it's just interesting that most of them are women. Again. Did you say before there were no, there weren't women prophets? No, there were women prophets. There were prophetesses. But the thing was, that passage in 1 Corinthians 14 is dealing with tongues and prophecy. And then at the bottom it says, oh, by the way, women, keep quiet. Oh, tongues and prophecy. In context, it's talking about tongues and prophecy. Yeah. If you took women out of the tongues and prophecy movement, what'd you get? It will stop. Okay? I'm not joking. I mean, I'm not trying to be sexist. That's just the truth. Okay? I mean, I've been to some of these churches and women after women after women are standing up and they're giving prophecies. And I'm like... I wanted to give a prophecy. Let the women keep silent. <laughs> well, my wife was with me and my daughter, so I was like, I'm not going to stir it up right now. So. I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's Rick and Holly. Thank, thank you, John and Ren, for sharing your gifts this morning. Amen. All those in worship this morning was such a blessing. Yes, Julie Green is a charlatan. My question, were prophecies only meant for the church? One of the seven chosen in Acts, Philip, had four daughters that prophesied. Right, Acts, that we just talked about that prophecy. If women were to be silent in the church, then to whom were Philip's daughters prophesying to? Were they prophesying to other women or unbelievers outside the church? Thanks. That's a good question, Rick. I don't really know the answer for that. There were prophetesses. Now, were they part of the church? 
We don't see that. I don't see women apostles. We don't see women prophets, you know, who prophesied in the church. So what were they? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't have an answer for you, though. <laughs> yeah, they were telling Philip what to say, okay? <laughs> Boy, that, you, you talk about women and this stuff, and it just... Okay, thank you for another great teaching. Just a quick question about women speaking. What about Anna the prophetess? <laughs> there were women prophets, okay? Uh, I, we made that clear. I Why? How? But in the church, again, I'm just telling you, 1 Corinthians 14, the context is tongues and prophecy. And in that context, he says, and then Timothy says, the women are to rule in the church. I, I, I permit not a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in subjection. So in the church context, women are not to be elders. Women are not to rule. Okay, And then people say, well, that was cultural. Well, then he takes it right back to Adam. And he says, because it wasn't Adam that was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. So I'm like, well, okay, it's not cultural. Okay, this is, this is God's word. Now, I know it just stirs up so much time because people today, women are equal and all, and they are equal in Christ. Okay? Well, I guess the problem today, we don't even know what a woman or a man is anymore, you know, so... So that really does cause a lot of trouble, but uh, dispensational teaches 69 weeks. Daniel's decree have occurred. They have placed a pause between the 69th week and the 70th week. They believe that the 70th week is still yet to occur. And due to, with a clear conscience, how is it that they misinterpret this? I believe that they were consecutive weeks that ended with the destruction. If we understood things, they could then there could be, then if we understand things as they do, then there could still be prophets. Well, of course, because they don't think the Lord has returned. They don't think any of that's complete and fulfilled. I, Daniel's prophecy, all right, many people put a gap in between, you know, the last week, okay? Now, this is my opinion. I think the gap is possible, all right? The first three and a half weeks are the Lord's ministry. Then we have a gap of 40 years. That gap fits with the feast of Yahweh. You have a gap between the spring feast and the fall feast of four months, representing the 40 years. So we have then the 40 years. Then you have a three and a half weeks. That's how long the, the siege on Jerusalem was. Another three and a half weeks. So then you have the last half of the week, the destruction. First half of the week, the ministry of the Lord. The last half of the week, the destruction. That's how I see it. I don't know anybody else that wants to agree with that, but that's okay. I'm... Yes. Um, I think part of the problem, among the many problems, I mean, I've never heard dispensationalists even teach about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's like it didn't happen. Well, yeah, you're right. The destruction of Jerusalem is not taught by a lot of people, and a lot of people they have never heard of it. When they hear about presence, they hear about Jerusalem. What, what happened? How did it get destroyed? They don't understand the significance of all that. Yet the scriptures are pretty clear, you know, like with the ones we just read about Luke, about Matthew. When you see the armies, get out of there. You know, all that's really important. Norm says the Spirit still gives illumination to God's Word, but doesn't give direct revelation. I would agree with that. But we have to be careful there, too, to say, well, God told me what this passage means. You know? But I think, yes, I think the Bible is a spiritual book, and God has to open our eyes. And if God doesn't open our eyes, you don't get it. 
Because there's plenty of unsaved men who study the book and lay different things out, and but without the Spirit of God, okay, you're not going to get it because it's it is spiritual. Uh, Shan says, I have known people who build their entire futures on prophecies given to them personally, and when it doesn't come to pass in their life, they are told to just stand in their faith. (laughs) I had some prophecy over me that I would find my voice, and guess what? I literally lost my voice. (laughs) Again, you know, some prophecies are so nebulous, but listen, people, we don't have to worry with this stuff, you know? And we were, we were at a conference once and someone came up to Glenn and said he had a prophecy for Glenn about his wife, you know, from his wife, basically. His wife had passed away at this time. And Glenn said, why didn't, he just, why didn't God just tell me? Why did God tell you to tell me? Why not just tell me? You know, which I mean, why skip the middleman, okay? If, you know, so you don't need somebody else. I, I don't know, people just, I guess they get impressed with something and they feel they just got to tell you and, you know... Uh, Gary from Pennsylvania says, Great topic, Dave. Confirms what I have been studying for a while. My question, what does it mean in Revelation 19.10 where it says the latter part, it says in the latter part of Revelation 19.10, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, prophecy is all about the Lord and all about what was going to take place. And that, all of that was, and see, the, the thing of it all being fulfilled. Now, when we say it's all fulfilled, with ongoing relevance, Okay, Revelation is fulfilled. Jerusalem was destroyed. The old covenant was ended. We are in the new covenant. Okay, it is consummated. But there's ongoing revel. I see the spirit and the bride still say, come. All right, now I don't think we're the bride of Christ because that was a first century church. But we're the children of the bride and we're still inviting and saying, come. And the Bible says that outside the city are sorcerers and whoremongers. And sort. there's still people outside the kingdom that we're trying to reach with the gospel. So there's ongoing significance, although the prophecy has ended, it's been fulfilled. There's an ongoing part of the church carrying the gospel to the world. One thing you didn't mention uh, about the creation of the term Jehovah was that prior to, I guess, 1518, J didn't even exist. J. That's right. There was no J. <laughs> Until the 17th century. So, you know, how they came up with. Um, Chris asked, who were the sons of the prophets in 2 Kings 2 and 4 during the days of Elijah and Elisha? Were they prophets in training? Were they simply disciples of the prophets? There don't appear to be any writings attributed to them. I don't, I don't have a question, an answer for that. That's a good question. The sons of the prophets. I don't know if they were just disciples of the prophets. Like, I don't think they needed to be prophets in training because, again, this is God. Boom. You don't have to study. Let me study and see what God wants. No, God just, boom, and you speak it. Okay? They didn't sit down and work this out and study their Bible and try to figure out. They, God spoke through them. It was a word from God. <laughs> okay, I like this text. I don't know who this is from, but they, they, they quoting here Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 from the King James Version. God, who at sundry times and in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets in times past, 
hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the script the worlds. And then he just says, done. <laughs> yeah. That's right. He spoke in the past. It is over. It is done. Mike Sullivan, the pit bull of preterism, writes, In my book, Armageddon Deception, I point out that MacArthur is very inconsistent to say that charismatics are guilty of redefining tongues from a known human language to gibberish, but then MacArthur redefines prophecy from a miraculous utterance to a mere preaching. And he is attributed to teaching tongues cease in A.D. 70, but prophecy won't end until the second coming and arrival of the new creation because the two witnesses prophesying of Revelation 11 is still future. Only full preterism solves this debate. Charismatic preterists have no scriptural defense, only appeal to experiences. I agree, Mike. You know, Mike, I was thinking, I think Kanye read your latest book, and that's why he's attacking the Jews so bad. You know, he's saying some of the same things you say about the Jews. He's getting a lot of grief for it. He got kicked off of Twitter for it, so be careful, Mike. 